Gordon Rankin's achievements scan the audio landscape with significant contributions in several fields. From his work developing the AudioQuest Dragonfly success story to the groundbreaking products from his personal brand Wavelength, Gordon has left his mark on high fidelity in more ways than one. One of the early developers of asynchronous USB, he chats with us today to discuss his portfolio of R&D, including his work with guitar tube amplifiers and DACs, but also to discuss why there is still room for growth in the digital space. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining. A very special guest, Gordon Rankin from AudioQuest, his own company, Wavelength, uh, Air Audio Digital Designer Tube Guy, assistant to the rock and roll stars himself. How are you doing today? Good. How about yourself? I'm very, I'm very good. I'm very excited to kind of sit down with you and pick your brain about a few things. But before we do that, I, I, you have a very long history doing different things around audio. So I was wondering if you could kind of just take us back to Cincinnati, Ohio, how you got your start, where your inspiration comes from, and how your life has woven around audio in different ways. Uh, well, it actually started in college. I was uh, anthropology major, archaeology, and percussion. And my percussion teacher said, you could really study hard and work at this, and you might make money at it. Or you can make you know, money with something associated with music. Yeah. And so I went back to the dorm room pretty frustrated and Listen to this guy's stereo. He had a nice Marantz tube system and stuff. And he said, you know what? You can design audio equipment. It, uh, it's not like rocket science. And so I left Indiana State that year and went to Ohio Northern. They specialize in, in really high-end engineering. And uh, they, one of the professors I had would make you design things before you could use them. So we actually designed vacuum tubes, and then we used those in amplifiers. We would design transistors, and we'd use those in making amplifiers. He he really was forward-thinking, and I just learned a bunch there. And when I came out of school, you know, not very many audio jobs, so... Right. You know, then and, and you know, in doing these interviews, I discovered too, there's not even really like an an audio design major in most engineering things, right? There's no. some basics there, but it's a lot on the job. And the thing is, is you know, engineering schools today, you know, you're basically a software engineer when you come out. And so, my first job was um, I did the Alaskan Pipeline Network Control System, which is you know, it's engineering. You're Doing stuff, but um, you're you're designing computers and you're designing network systems and things like that. And everything has some association with audio, but it, it really in 1995, my wife said, you know, why don't you just do the audio thing? And if it doesn't work out, then just go back and get another job. And so, you know, even though I was making audio equipment under wavelength from 81 to 95, it was really my second job. And then 95 was basically when, you know, one full time and been that way ever since. So, yeah. So you have done some design work for uh, musicians. What Can you just go into a little bit of what, how that came about? And uh, Yeah, because since I'm, I'm a musician, you know, I love talking to musicians. We'd go to concerts all the time. And, and uh, local musicians in Cincinnati were pretty big. Adrian Blue, Rob Fetters, uh, 
Brian Lovely. He played with, uh, you know, Bowie and stuff like that on tour. So, you know, there was a lot of people always asking me to fix their tube amps and things like that. And I hate fixing other people's equipment. So I, one day I was fixing a Vox AC30, which is a mm-hmm. typical little blow-up amplifier because those ZL84s. And that was a typical Beatles amp, was it not? Yes. Yeah. And so... I said, you know, I could really do a lot better than this. And so I designed one for Rob Fetters uh, when he was playing with Adrian Blue and the Bears and uh, took it to him, and both Adrian and Rob played the amp, and they're like, this is really special. And then I said, no, 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 it's, it needs help. Took it home, fixed a few things, came back the next day, and they're like, what the F did you do? You know, And that was really it. I knew I had to start taking guitar lessons and... <laughs> So I have 15 years of guitar lessons. I'm okay. <laughs> Do you have a favorite guitar that you like to put in your amps? Um, I have three electrics. I have a custom Callings uh, 290S with gold foil pickups. Mm. Dennis Fano made me uh, a Sonic Sphere, and David Schneider uh, made me a Esquire at, that uh, has silver pickups in it. Has silver wound pickups instead wow. of copper. That, that it's unbelievable. It really is. I I love playing more acoustic guitar, but mm. you know I have some nice electrics. Yeah. I I'm a, I've always been traditionally a Les Paul guy, but I have to say during the time period when I did most of my guitaring, I was a huge Led Zeppelin fan. So it wasn't that I was out there searching for a bunch of different things. I was like, no Telecaster for me. I'm just I'm I'm this guy. I am Jimmy Page. <laughs> Jimmy Page has that the new Fender. Um, Telcaster that they're doing. Oh yeah, that's his. You know, it was his signature guitar for years. I guess I have to go buy something then. Yeah, <laughs> just don't tell your wife. This in, this interview just got really expensive. <laughs> you working with you know these guys at, at the at that level uh, fixing their amps. Then you start creating your under the wave like brand. Correct. Came out of that. Came out of that session then. Yeah, and uh, so. We do a thing, it's called Rock Boat. It's every end of January, beginning of February. 32 bands get on a boat, and you sail around the you know Gulf, and you just play music all day long. Do only, do only 10 bands come back? Um, <laughs> let's put it this way. You need a vacation from the vacation. Um, and, but you get to meet people, yeah. you know, and so uh, Bare Naked Ladies were headlining one year, and uh, I got to meet them, and talked to them, and they were looking for uh, a new touring group of amps. And so I said, yeah, let's talk about it and see what you think. And then you get involved with the guitar techs, and and they tell you what the real story is, like how things go together and how, you know, because they have like 25, 35 years of experience in doing these tours. And uh, they were very helpful in what they wanted. And, you know, you have to think about the environment and, it's just like a, yeah, I think that when we think about mm, you know your typical audiophile gear, there's another layer layer of uh, mobility that's necessary here. Like it can't be, it's got to be manhandled on a regular basis. It's got to survive that. You know, it has to be reliable to the nth degree. I would only imagine at that level. Yeah, it. But it's when you deal with pro audio like guitar amps and recording and things like that. It's really great working with these people because they love music so much. Uh, you know, when you design for audio, people have 
an interpretation of what they think the sound should be like. When you're talking to a musician, they're searching for something in their brain that they've never heard before. And it's almost like I have to think left brain, right brain when I'm dealing with audio as compared to guitar amps and things like that. Yeah. So uh, and that that brand still exists? You still have amplifiers under the Wavelink brand? We have audio um, amplifiers, pre-amplifiers, mostly SCT, exotic type tube amps, all tube. Uh, We have DACs, obviously the asynchronous USB technology I came up with uh, 16 years ago that was used by Air and MBL and Berkeley and AudioQuest and NAD and just boatload of people over the years. Um, that was pretty much... Hold on. Are you developed asynchronous? Um, I didn't actually develop the concept. The concept actually happened by a mistake. Texas Instruments created a DSP processor that was used in a commercial product. The problem was it couldn't lock on to the sample rate exactly right. So it couldn't lock on to 44.1. Um, just because of the way it was designed. It was just a hair off. And so at that point, they only had adaptive and synchronous protocols. And so TI went to the USB org and said, we need to add a third one, which is asynchronous, which basically means that the DAC is driving the computer instead of the computer driving the DAC. And so I took, took a look at that because I... Do a lot. Of, I designed computers for a living for my last real job, and so I knew all about USB and protocols and things like that. And so I saw this asynchronous, and I was like, "This is interesting," because now we can use a reference master clock to drive the computer instead of the computer adding jitter to all these DACs. And so I did the first one. I remember it was like a one of those white MacBooks. You know, oh, yeah. I had an eighty gigabyte drive with audio files on it and stuff. And I plugged this DAC in. It was like in the middle of summer at my house with my system and everything. And I'm not really expecting a whole lot out of this whole thing. And I played the first track, and I felt like I had to run outside and start telling people Mm -hmm. about it. And uh, from there, um, Charlie Hansen heard about what I was doing from the forums and things like that that we're all on. And he approached me about licensing that technology. And that's pretty much what took off. Um, you know, and we did that in 2003 at, at CES. And, uh, well, and what was the first, what was that first DAC that had it? It was the Cosecant from Wavelength was the first one. And then after that, the QB9 from and, Air. And after that, though, I mean, it's pretty much in every DAC now. Do they still use it, right? It's, yeah, yeah. It's so in it, every DAC. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know of one that doesn't use it anymore that's USB-based. Do they have to license it from you? Yeah, yeah. That's oh. a, yep. And so then I, I would w- lead with that one next time. That's a pretty big <laughs> deal. It's like, <laughs> s- scratch all the, the tube amp guitar stuff. I, said, I created asynchronous. It should be on your business card, and it should just be like asynchronous creator. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't me that created the idea. But the thing was, is, you know... We, after we created it, we had to go to Apple and Microsoft to help them understand the importance of it 
sure. to include this as a native driver. And, oh. you know, the big problem was the next step, which is what we call UAC2, which is where you can do above 2496, because all these original DACs that we did asynchronously were all full speed. When we went to high speed, we worked with XMOS and some of these other developers with ARM chips. We had to go to Apple, and they were right on board with yeah. it the, yeah. because the pro industry wanted them to do it. But literally, Windows didn't do UAC2 until eight months ago. I, I wasn't even aware that they did it until you told me. I was like, oh, it's like always capped off in 96. Yeah, so they... So there, what, what was the resistance? What was the problem? Why why well, Apple and not them? Uh, you know, I don't... The, the way that they run engineers at Microsoft is totally different from Apple. Like In a good way? Um, no, they like moving people around. Mm -hmm. And so these protocols, once you get them running, it's they're very easy to manage in the software-wise. But interpreting... What a USB device does is very complex. So we send this huge spreadsheet of information to the computer that tells, you, tells it what we are. It's called enumeration. And when you had the full speed stuff, it was basically you told sample rate, you know, this is what I support, 24 bits, 16 bits, 32 bits, whatever, you're done. But when you're doing... When they went from what we call UAC-1, which was the original full-speed spec, to UAC-2, the pro people came in and said, we need all this stuff, like clocking options, MIDI, and all this other things. And that spreadsheet now is like 400 times longer. So you have to interpret this correctly to know how that device is going to work. And, and, and that's pretty daunting. And Apple still has the same engineers today that were working with um, me in 2003. Interesting. In the same group. And Apple, or Microsoft, um, the guy who did the Windows version left two months ago. He's in a different group now. I think he's in video or something. And so they have a new engineer. So he has to go back through and learn all these things about how it works and like, say a problem comes up with a, a big company, then he has to go ahead and fix that, but he has to figure out where it is first, where this problem is, and make sure he doesn't break it for somebody else. So it sounds like you have a bit, just a wee bit of knowledge on the subject. Is there a reason why you think some people might say that optical for a while has sounded superior to USB in some ways? Um, n n optical SPDIF would never sound as good as USB. Because it's adaptive, meaning that that the device is driving the DAC, and you're going to get jitter from that, which you're going to have to try and remove. Remember, trying to fix something is never as easy as designing it the right way the first time. So the only thing that optical buys you is that there's no ground potential between the two devices. But that's it. Uh, do you think that there's any way a USB cable could make a difference in the sound quality? Um, yes. Okay. I, so in what ways? <laughs> um, so when you 
get to this level and you have to design stuff for other companies, you have to buy test equipment and verification software and things like that. So I have a full Tektronix USB um, test set. It's really expensive. Don't even ask. It's stupid money. But one of the things I noticed, you know, looking at the protocol year in and year out, so I'll actually look at frames and error rates and things like that. And uh, I noticed the cables, especially in the high-speed area, will cause errors in the frame. And so audio protocols are not error recovery. They'll pass those errors on to you because you, you'll only notice those as annoyances in the way things sound. It's not like, you know, you might lose one bit here, one bit there. You know, depending on where that bit is, it's going to, you know, drive you crazy. But it's never going to be consistent enough to be a problem that happens all the time. So certain cables really change the way these error rates happen. And the distance and the technology with individual cable makers creates a different problem because there's reflection in the cable. And the asynchronous protocol works like this. So you send, let's say, 576 bytes of information at, you know, 480 megahertz, okay? So then you immediately turn around and you tell it, I need more data or I need less data or I'm fine with how much data I'm currently getting. That's the asynchronous feedback. When a cable turns around like that, you have what's called overhang. The, The image of what was last transmitted to then what's received by the computer. And sometimes that'll cause an error in the asynchronous feedback. And anytime you have a USB cable that you have a problem with where you have pops and clicks, that means that cable has too much overhang. And that's it's actually clobbering the asynchronous feedback packet. So that's one type of error that's easily, you know, I ask people right away if they're having a problem with their deck. Do you have pops and clicks and stops and stuff like that? That's an asynchronous feedback problem. Mm-hmm. If you change your USB cable and you hear a certain different sound, then it's possible, two possible things. One is the radiation of RFI, EMI radiation that's on the cable to the DAC. Is that getting in there? That that happens. That's one of the reasons AudioQuest asked me to design the jitterbug, you know, because that actually gets rid of that type of noise. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it's not like a linear noise to keep that 5 volts really clean. It's about high-frequency energy and getting rid of that. Um, the other thing would be these packet errors for the actual samples, you know, if you're actually receiving errors in the samples themselves. Yeah. Why do you think there's so much confusion around that particular subject online and there's just so much anger around that, that idea? Is- um, the problem is, when you're online, people have a certain set of things that they've actually tried. Okay, you know, nobody has... I, I've probably looked at 600 different USB cables, okay? The guy online's maybe looked at three or four, 
And so one works for him better than another, then that's only one setup. Like if you use like a Windows machine to a DAC and you use, let's say, an Asus or or you could go out and buy a Dell or whatever, you know, a Dell and an Asus, they, they might not even sound the same. You know, actually, USB ports don't actually sound the same. If you have one that's shared with, like, a trackpad, the keyboard, the Bluetooth module, and stuff like that, it won't sound as good as as the other one. And, you know, like on Apple, you can look up, you can see the whole tree of your USB stuff. You just get a sense, you know, about this Mac, more information, and it gives you, you click down to USB, and you can see all devices that are on the same level as your DAC is. And are, are you saying that uh, a Macintosh computer generally has a, a better path for the USB than other computers? Uh, they have better engineering. I think that's one of the reasons why, as a hardware reference, it's a better computer. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, all, this, all these servers are based on motherboards and stuff that companies have developed. You know, they're not actually going out and developing their own motherboards in most cases. Yeah. Um, and those can be different, you know. So, and the way that they work their power supplies, you know, thermal technologies. Computers, when I originally did this in 2003, it was like a revelation. I thought, oh, here we go. You have a USB cable, you have a DAC, you have a computer. Everything's going to sound the same. Now, I was, that was probably the most wrong statement I ever made. You know, the uh, the software you use can have an effect on it. Um, the amount of processing you use. Like, we were upstairs earlier, and we were somebody asked us to use a different software package than we were using, and it was using about twenty two percent of the processing power of the MacBook Pro. And I said, "Well, look at this." And I have iStat monitor, and it shows the actual all the pro, all the processors, cores, and what they're doing, and how much usage, memory, how much power the power supply is drawn, everything. So I said, let's go back to what we were doing. It was using 0.7%. Hmm. So we went, to, we went to iTunes, and it was using 46%. Mm-hmm. So when you're using a switching power supply onto a computer, that ends up being noise that's in the mains, which is going to get back into other parts of your system. So it's not cut and dry, but the good thing is, is there's not really that many parts, and it's not really expensive for you to try these different things. Most of the software packages have 30 days. Go ahead and try this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. and you can find out for yourself which one sounds better. Uh, it doesn't cost anything to try one USB over the other. You know that doesn't cost anything. Um, it's pretty easy to narrow down the best sound you can get. Uh, so, yeah, you did mention that you were involved in the uh, both the Jitterbug and the AudioQuest um, Dragonfly. So those are kind of the... It was kind of a unique thing that came out. It's a really small package, and some would say that it was kind of revolutionary at the time because given the size, there really wasn't too much that was coming out in this... You stick a gum-sized thing uh, that just went straight out you know, and drove headphones uh, directly. In a way, it was kind of a brilliant move, I thought, just from the idea that we, we talk about all these complicated things, but in the end, people just want better sound. And when you have a laptop computer on your lap, 
which is I'm assuming what the original idea was before all the dongles came with the phone, or was that always part of the the idea of it was to be a dongle for a phone? Uh, it's it's an interesting story. So, AudioQuest came to me to design the Dragonfly originally, and it was going to be a USB cable with kind of a thing in the middle, and then two RCA connectors off a cable in the end, and and uh, Bill and Joe were. And Steve Silverman were talking to me about it, and they're, they're like, you should take some notes. And so I'm fishing around in my pocket for a pen, and I pull out a USB stick. And I go, you know, we could do it like this. And everybody looked at each other, and they go, but we're a cable company. And I said, but think about this. <clears throat> you can do so much more with this size. You could, you could come up and do this, that, and the other. And so they're like, okay, well, I said... Even if we, if you don't like that idea, we can still go with your technology. We just solder cables to this board. Mm-hmm. So in the end, they thought it was a brilliant idea because, you know, it, it was simple. It was worked with everything, and it was low power, and uh, and it was really, you know, the original Black Dragonfly was. Um, we went through several versions because there was a thought that. You know, they wanted this technology and that technology, and we went through a bunch of different DAC chips, and and uh, you know, they're very thorough in what they want and how they want it to sound and look like. And um, so, after I think five different prototypes, we came up with the original Dragonfly, and uh, um, it was a huge success. From there, then what? Two years later, we came out with Black and Red. Then what? Three months ago, two months ago, we came out with Cobalt, which is amazing in what it does. And power-wise and uh, the power supply, we added some of the technology of Jitterbug in there to make it more mobile-friendly. So it would remove things like cellular hashing and and, uh, RFI and EMI you'd get from that. Wi-Fi, you know, we thought, okay, you know, this is going to work good. We include the uh, USB-A to USB-C converter so that it works with you know, new phones, new computers, new tablets. Um, yeah, it's been a big success. Uh, in regards to the Cobalt, there was just a massive groundswell of reviews and chatter online. I mean, everybody really loves a budget thing. That sounds really good. There was a gentleman that came out and had published some graphs that said that at the highest level there was distortion in the line, and I was just wondering if you wanted to, if you had heard that, if you had, could address that issue at all, or well, did you, are you aware that this guy had a um, had published? I, some? Yeah, and uh, you know, actually, most of the stuff, the testing equipment's just basically, you know, a computer interface, you know, and stuff like that. Um, no music will ever go to zero dBE full scale. It's always going to be 20 dB down. So that you're never even going to run into that. And when we get, if there's any more serious things that we want to address, we can do a firmware update. You know, it's, it's not like that's not a problem. Um, you know, we have the capability to do that. Just like when Red and Black came out, they weren't MQA compliant. Yeah until we up, did a software update. And uh, then we did a couple of software updates because Android's phones and tablets are 
kind of a mess in the way that they do volume control and things like that. So, How, What do you kind of think about MQA in general? Do you think it makes it sound better? How does it fit into the grand scheme of things in your mind? The big thing about the naysayers that have actually tried to tear apart everything about the MQA and probably spent thousands of hours trying to figure out how this stuff works, they still don't know anything about how it's encoded. So everything that they say is totally worthless because they have no idea how it's encoded. They only know how it's decoded. And that's the only thing they could talk about. I like MQA. I think it sounds really good. It adds air to the music. It, it makes it more resilient to, you know, the, the technology before it. And, um, you know, it's, I think it sounds great. When you look at all the issues that run the gamut with DAX now, do you think that USB is a big issue, somewhat of an issue? Does it matter as much or as little in terms of the total output when it comes to the DAC chip selection? First off, I think audiophiles have to stop going for higher numbers, okay? There's no really good A to D converters that are above 88.2. Even the 90, you start running into thermal issues. And... These companies that are doing 384, well, there's no A to D converters doing 384, you know? Most of it has to be upsampled from some other frequency. Um, 768, come on. (laughs) You know, at that point, it's not sounding as good as it would at 48K. Uh, You've got to stop running chasing these numbers. Um, As far as, think about it this way. If, and this is regard to USB. So, if you have a packet that is 96K, so you're getting 576 bytes per millisecond. Okay, so you go to 192, you double that, you go 384, you're doubling that, 768, you're doubling that. That's coming in at one packet. The amount of errors you're going to get in that frame at high speeds is just going to go up incrementally every time you increase that Um, speed of that sample rate. And there's big diminishing returns. You know, I think people that do a lot of upsampling, I would try, you know, upsampling 44.1, 48 by 2. And that would be as far as I would go. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think there's any uh, credibility to the idea that there isn't gains at all beyond CD quality 44? Or do you think there is something to be gained by what we call traditionally now high-resolution audio? Well, think about it this way. And you go from 44.1 to 88.2, that's a factor of 2, okay? But when you go from 16-bit to 24-bit, that's a factor of 256. So I think that, you know, if you go to 24-bit stuff and especially with streaming, you know, you don't want to go too high on streaming because then... You know, you're basically at the slave of whoever your, you know, network provider is. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the quality of the sound is going to be determined on that. You know, I, I had a really good discussion with David Chesky, um, who was using Wi-Fi to, to, do, to compare streaming services. Mm. And I said, David, you can't do that. You know, you've got to be wired. It's got to be Ethernet, um, you know, wired into your setup for that. And he he did that, and he's like, wow, that's a huge increase in performance. Mm. And it's because, you know, Wi-Fi takes about 40 times more data just to do the same thing. Mm. Yeah. 
um, of all the things you've done with your life and all the things that you've cre- created or helped create, what do you kind of find as your crowning achievement or thing you're most proud of? Um, I don't ever even think about that stuff. You know, for me, it's always the next thing. People give me ideas, you know. I'll be at bars and, and somebody will talk about medical equipment and I'll write on a napkin what I would do. They call me and say, can you do this? I'm like, no, I don't have enough time to do that. But you just come up with, if you use your imagination and to solve these problems, it, you could, it's really exciting to do and figure out challenges ahead for you. I'm assuming you're probably in a position to just completely retire and drink martinis as the sun sets. What do you think drives you to kind of keep, <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, why, why are you? Why do you keep doing what you you you're doing in this thing? What drives you? Somebody told me because I can. I like that response. You know, I, I you know, I I came up with five new products for the show. Uh, I thought that was pretty forward thinking. You know, and and some of the ideas are stuff that people were doing ten years ago, but you just do them better, and you find out it sounds really good. You know, and why not go for the sound? Um, so I love doing pro audio stuff. I love doing audio stuff. It it just really excites me. And the more bizarre it is, it's even, it's fun, you know, vacuum tubes that, you know, were made back in the thirties and forties, you know, those, those engineers were brilliant. You know, they had to be because they didn't have anything to work with. So, yeah. What, what is it specifically? Do you think that is the draw towards analog tubes why do audio, why do we still use this archaic technology in in our systems for a lot of the tr- traditional enthusiasts so if you build a tube amp you can do that with three active devices or even two active devices and uh, a tube for the power supply if i did the same thing with solid state that would be about 270 transistors mm. the thing is is you know when you do a tube amp or a tube preamp or a tube DAC, the magnetics around it and um, the parts quality and things like that really matter because you're only dealing with one device or two devices at a time. And most companies don't want to pay that extra money to to find that perfect component Mm -hmm. that's going to match that. And so we... We own like the Peerless Transformer collection and Dynaco. We have some of the Western Electric drawings, and we draw from those people that were brilliant designers in magnetics, and uh, we come up with some transformers for different devices, headphone amps and guitar amps and, you know, you name it. And it's easy, and it's fun. In your opinion, are there any like great minds, like unsung heroes of these designs that no one really knows about because it was just a long time ago? Or there, Bell Labs probably had a boatload of people. I mean, Norman Crowhurst was a brilliant transformer designer with Peerless, and you know, some of these guys. You know, you look at your stuff, and it's baffling how they even came up with the ideas. You know. Aliens. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Einstein definitely was alien. <laughs> Anything that you wanted to kind of add at the end of the podcast here? No, no. You know, just everybody have fun. Come on. That's what we're here for. You should, online, first off, use your name. You know, everybody wants to know who you are. 
you know, don't keep some alias, you know, that's too dark. And uh, listen, you know, nobody's wrong, you know, everybody's right with what they're doing and you have no idea what their setup is. Mm. Yep. Thanks so much for coming on, Gordon. You're welcome. <laughs>